All right, this is a bit different. We're looking at atheist memes today. So meme time. I've kind of debated in the back of my head of doing some videos responding to memes. I usually feel like it's not worth it. <laughs> but today, uh, because my Women in Ministry series is going to take even more time to continue prepping for the very next one, and I don't want to rush anything. I want to prepare it well and thoughtfully and have it there as like a lasting and worthwhile contribution to the to the debate and the topic. Um, so I'm going to take my time with it. And that means that today we're going into atheist memes. And this is going to be a shorter video than normal for an, a Monday or any live stream for that matter. But we'll just get right into it. This is meme number one. Meme number one. And um, let me make sure that you can see the counter on the screen there. There you go. Numero uno, as they say in um, in the local pizza joint called Numero Uno near my house. So this meme says, let me in. Jesus, Jesus, and for those listening on podcast, right? Jesus is, is in this meme. He's standing at the door of a house and he's knocking to get in. And um, he says, you know, let me in. And um, wait, here, just hold on. I know you guys want to see Mika. So <laughs> she's, she's not making it easy for the camera to get her. But there she is. Yeah. Uh-huh. She was acting a little wild. Uh, at any rate, Jesus is standing knocking at the door. He says, let me in. And the person inside the house says, Why? Jesus responds, so I can save you. And then the person in the house says, from what? Jesus responds, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Uh, this is to me a, um, this is what I'll call a reframing tool, right? Where you where you take the same sort of basic idea that, that's within, within Christianity about the very gospel itself, about how Jesus is like trying to save us. And then, you're, and then you reframe it in a way that misrepresents key facts, this is the important part, because reframing is not necessarily bad. You can reframe in a way that informs and gives better understanding of a topic, helps us helps us go deeper in, into knowing it and understanding it from a new perspective. But new perspectives aren't always right perspectives. Sometimes they're distorted perspectives. They're myopic perspectives. They're perspectives that have missing facts. In this case, it's a missing fact perspective. And those who know the gospel, who are Christians, understand very well why this is really not in any way a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In no fashion is this representing accurate Christianity. Like, I don't have to defend this meme, because this meme does not represent Christianity. So Jesus is not standing at the door knocking in the sense of someone who just wants in your house. That's not the, that's not the framing that's proper for a biblical gospel. The biblical gospel would be that Jesus is knocking in the sense of, here's the right framing, one who um, has been sinned against and is the righteous judge and has come to make peace with us before judgment comes. So there's elements of truth here, but it's those those missing pieces that make this meme successful. So this, this one was sent in, by the way, by uh, a guy named uh, Jimmy Jam on Twitter. And you guys can send me some stuff on Twitter. I, I was trying to think of where you could send me memes if there's ones that you think I might want to respond to in the future. And I, I can't promise I will, but I may. But you might want to make me aware of them to consider. Twitter's a convenient place for me to do that. You might find other ways to send them to me, but um, it's not my full-time thing to respond to silly memes. So we're missing elements of judgment. Uh, Jesus is 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 here just basically a bully in this picture who's like, hi, for no reason whatsoever, I'm threatening to hurt you. Or you can let me in to con to control or to be part of your family. Otherwise, I'm going to harm you. So he's kind of like some weird stalker character. Uh, but in reality, in the gospel, of course, the message is that 
mankind has sinned against God in grievous and serious ways, right? And judgment, because God is holy and just, it's more like there's a criminal in the house and the judge himself comes and he says to the criminal, I will pay your debt. I will pay your debt if you accept my invitation. Otherwise, you'll have to pay your own debt. In this case, it's a wholly different situation. So this is another one of the many, 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 many times. This is what happens 90% of the time I'm talking to um, people who are bringing accusations against Christianity. I have to say, yeah, I don't defend the thing you want me to defend because I don't believe the thing you claim that I believe. This is just a reframing in a way that is a distorted fashion instead of clear. All right, let's go to the second one. Here's the second one. This is um, on uh, Queer Heathen who posted this on, um, I mean, is that Instagram or is it is it Reddit? I don't even remember. I just looked around on a few different things and took screenshots. So uh, anyway, is that you guys would know. Is that, that's probably Instagram, right? I don't, I don't know. I hate all the platforms. <laughs> um, so this one says it, it has a picture of, of, of Zeus and then uh, who is that? Hades. You know, the, from the cartoon characters from like Disney cartoons. It says, why is it so unreasonable to ask for verifiable proof of your God's existence? If I demanded that you obey Zeus as the one true God, wouldn't you be asking for the same proof? And this is actually a very reasonable accusation for anyone who offers no proof. You catch that? It, it, this is a very reasonable accusation against any religious group that offers zero evidence or zero proof. But Christianity is definitely not one of those groups. So Christianity, this, is, this has been from the core. This is not some new apologist trick of the 21st century. This is from the beginning, from the first century on. The evidence for the truth of Christianity was a large number of important different things. So one of them would have been the very resurrection of Christ himself. This was strong evidence for the truth of Christianity. If Jesus, in fact, died and did rise again, then that was proof of Christianity. We don't, we don't have, generally speaking, with these other religions, we don't have historical claims that are at the foundation of the religion. So, for instance, like, say, Buddhism doesn't really depend on the truth of any particular historical claims, uh, especially ones that can have evidence to support them. But Christianity has a number of lines of evidence. So we have evidence for the existence of God himself, like the cosmological arguments, arguments plural. These are philosophical arguments that are taken very seriously, even by atheist philosophers, at least decent ones. And you have things like the fine-tuning argument from the, the nature of the universe being fine-tuned in a few different aspects, not only in, well, in hundreds of different ways, but fine-tuned for the existence of the universe the way it is, but also fine-tuned for the existence of life that's intelligent and that can observe the universe. This seems a, a huge anomaly that needs a, an explanation because it implies purposefulness in the nature of the universe. Now, would Zeus explain that? Would Zeus be able to borrow the evidence that we're using for God, for like the ultimate God of all? No, he wouldn't because Zeus is subsequently part of the, the creation. He's not the actual creator. So he can't use these sort of omni-style arguments for evidence for Zeus. What about prophecy? We have prophecy in the Old Testament, prophecy in the New Testament. We have a book that catalogs or books that catalog events that go back thousands of years, but we also have extra-biblical verification of those things, both in the prophetic realm and in the historic realm. These things are important. And a Christian, of course, even if a Christian is ignorant of these things 
And in an online conversation, they don't know how to communicate that stuff because maybe, and, and here's a possibility I, I would want the atheist to at least consider. Just hypothetically, let's say that an individual had a, what at least seems to them to be a very genuine encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. They've really, as far as they can tell, they've truly, really encountered God and their life has been transformed. At least you'd say for them, that's really good evidence. It'd be hard to prove to you, right? That would be another step, trying to prove to you that you should believe based on their experience. But at least they would seem to have good evidence, even if they don't know anything about prophecy, anything about things like cosmological arguments or evidence from creation for the existence of God, which both philosophy and the Bible talks about. Even if they didn't have any of that stuff in their minds, they would seem to have good justification for their beliefs. It'd be difficult for them to prove it to you. And so I think that's why when encountering others, I like to go to those things. And if you look at the book of Acts, the apostles consistently throughout the book of Acts, they use these different arguments. They use arguments from creation to the creator, and they use arguments from the existence and person, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the truthfulness of Christianity. What I'm saying here is that the New Testament apostles were also, in a sense, apologists, very much fit for their time. When they went to a Jewish audience, they used certain apologetics. When they went to a Gentile audience, it was a little different, right? But the evidence side of things is weighs very heavily in favor of uh, Christianity. So here's the bottom line. If you're an atheist and you think this is a good objection to Christianity, I want to challenge you that maybe you haven't looked... Um, you haven't looked very clearly at the mountain of evidential claims there are towards Christianity. And if your response, like I can feel it right now that many watching would say their response to this is, there's no evidence, Mike. You pretend there's evidence. There's zero evidence. There's no, there's none, none, zip, zilch, zero, nada. That is a um, blanket denial, but it's a denial that flies in the face of even like the consensus of philosophers, historians, like, you're living in your own private Idaho with that kind of claim. There's a lot of evidence that you should take very seriously. In addition, we can even talk about miraculous claims that are related to Christianity. Craig Keener has written a couple books on this called Miracles that you might consider. He starts with philosophical stuff about miracles, but then he goes into specific accounts and different types of evidence that can be used to support those claims. What we're saying is... We have, we're talking past each other because in the atheist communities, we'll often have them saying, there's zero evidence for Christianity, zero, zero, zero. And then we'll have Christians going, here's evidence, here's evidence, here's evidence, here's evidence. And then they're just like, nah, that's not evidence. Obviously, this isn't where thinking takes place. This is just where name calling ends up happening. Let's look at the next one. Number three, we're just looking at seven today. Maybe I'll do other meme things in the future. Maybe we'll do a Muslim memes video. There, did you know there's Muslim memes? Might be something worth thinking about, talking about. I'm not trying to create flame wars. I'm trying to put them out with logic and reasoning. I mean, I hope so. That's my goal. Not like I'm perfect at all that stuff. I must drink water. Okay. This is meme number three. It says Christians and, and, and then the, a colon. So the idea behind this meme is this is what Christians do. Here's what Christians do. Always pay very close attention when a non-believer summarizes Christianity, Christianity in some way. Like I said, most of the time in my personal experience, many years of dialoguing and interacting with non-believers and skeptics, um, it's rarely an accurate representation. And I don't mean it's rarely a flattering representation. Okay, it doesn't have to be flattering, but it should at least be accurate. All right, here we go. 
Christians say, accept Jesus and you'll spend eternity praising a deity and never having sex, eating, or doing anything else you've ever enjoyed on earth. And then the picture is some girl from some chick show. I can't remember the name of it, but I think I recognize it. Uh, saying, I'm just going to pack up and go straight to hell now. Let me, okay, let me walk through. I was going to give my conclusion, but let me walk through some of this. I, I feel the snark. I could feel the eye rolling that takes place by those who post a meme. Uh, this is posted by Deconstruction Girl on, um, so that's probably Instagram, I guess. And there's like a thousand likes on it. Um, as of the time I grabbed it, um, this, I can feel the snark and the eye rolling, but is this what Christians are really saying? Let's break down these statements one at a time and being someone who believes very confidently things about heaven and things about hell based upon the Bible. I'm a, I'm a Christian and I, I want to have a very biblical viewpoint on these things. Let's just see, do I, are we saying this or is this actually a lie in order to mock Christianity, which of course that's what it'll end up being. So they say, accept Jesus and you will, one, spend eternity praising a deity. This is the closest thing they've got to like just plain truth. Actually, the sex one we'll talk about in a second. But but there's there, there's misconception here from, from my own understanding of heaven as a naive person versus about the topic anyways, not like just naive about everything. Um, to my to my dialogue with others about the topic of heaven, there's common misunderstandings I've seen that heaven is a long worship session, right? They think of it as a long church service that never ends. So when they say worshiping a, a deity, praising a deity for eternity, they, they probably mean literally just singing nonstop for eternity. And doing anything nonstop for eternity would probably seem to get pretty boring. But Scripture does not tell us this. In fact, heaven seems like it will have an ebb and flow of life. It seems like it will be like a heaven and earth meet. There's a city. There's a populace that's there. There's a lot of individuals. There's probably a lot of activities. Uh, we're embodied in, in new bodies. So, no, it's not just constant worship. But there's something here that I want to point out. The idea of praising a deity is so downplayed that here that a no Christian would ever put it this way because no Christian believes this. In Christian theology, especially you go back historically, you have a phrase that I want to share with you guys called the beatific vision. What's the beatific vision? And it's this idea that when you stand in the presence of God and you're experiencing and seeing and feeling his glory in his fullness, that this has this amazing effect on you. Whereas like Psalm 16 says that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That this is because being in God's presence... For instance, let me let me draw us a step step by step. We'll get closer. There are some people when you're in there, just in their presence, it's just nice. It's just pleasant to just be in their presence. There are some things like say a beautiful sunset with like a babbling brook, you know, and the water just playfully splashing and the trees and the birds, and it's like that golden hour of the sun, and, and you're just like, oh, this is so wonderful. There are experiences that that communicate to us like some wonderful things. God's very presence is not just praising a deity, like it's this throwaway thing that's actually a negative and not a positive. The idea of being God's, in God's incredible presence seems like a plus to me. But of course, that is so downplayed because they don't, generally speaking, that those who are posting these types of things, there's little concern for God or the glory of God or, the, or, or being connected to God in, a, in this true fashion. And this is a sad thing because I think it demonstrates an overall spiritual blindness that is coming upon a person when they can look up even at God and think, 
you're not worth very much to me. That is amazing. That is just amazing. The number two one is that we would be uh, never having sex. And I think on this one, I would say there, there's, there's a half truth in this. Probably not. Like the scripture doesn't clearly say there's specifically, explicitly, there's no sex in heaven. And some people have, even Billy Graham, believe it or not, right? There's an interview where he talks about this and he kind of hints, strongly hints, that he thinks that maybe there will be sex in heaven and it'll be pure and it'll be okay and everything. And of course, sex on earth is pure and good and proper and something to celebrate inside the context of marriage. But I think probably not. And I would I would just take you to a scripture to demonstrate why I would lean this way, um, pretty strongly lean this way, although I wouldn't I wouldn't divide from brothers and sisters on the topic. Of course, anybody obsessed with it is probably a little bit weird. Um, Matthew 22, 30 says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry, this is Jesus speaking. This is the resurrection. This is this eternal life that's coming. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This description of the resurrection as being a distinctly different condition it's not just that we don't get married but it's that with our new bodies our resurrected bodies are glorified they're new they're different we don't behave in all the same ways it seems as though there isn't there isn't sex but probably because there is no need for sex there is no design for sex and sex is not the most amazing thing in the world anyways right the the the, the, some people think this. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> and it's not. It's wonderful. You guys, forgive me for talking openly about these things. I, I think that it's healthy for us to do so in a healthy way. This is something our culture is obsessed about. We become so inflamed about. So we, we, we react in one of two ways, right? We're obsessed with it or we denigrate it and we lower it so that it, we think it's like worthless or some icky or something like that. Instead, it's a glorious, wonderful thing in the right context. But you, you desire this because your body is designed for it. If you're resurrected with a body that's designed differently, you're not going to desire it. This is my own understanding on that topic. But let's read on. Eating. You'll never eat again? I, actually, I mean, there is descriptions of like banquets and food related to heaven. So there, that seems to be not be the case. I don't know if people who've taught that you would never eat. Maybe they're picturing heaven as a disembodied ghost-like experience forever. But that's not our eternity. Our eternity was with a resurrected, glorified body that's better than our current one. They also says here, um, you'll never do anything else you've ever enjoyed on earth. What? This is what Christians are teaching? Do you, this is literally just a non-believer who says deconstruction girl, which means she says, I was a former Christian. These are people who say, oh yeah, I, I have the authority to tell you what Christians really believe because I used to be one. Like this is this is to me one of the most insulting comments I get is people go, Mike, I used to be just like you. And I'm, then they say something nutty and I'm like, I don't think you were like me. Um, th 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 I used to be a Christian, so so I've got this kind of inside knowledge about what Christians believe. So I make this meme or I share it. Oh, yes, you will never do anything you've enjoyed on earth. I remember in youth group when my youth pastor was like, let me describe heaven to you all. You have to praise a deity. You will never do anything fun you've ever enjoyed on earth. Let us hope for heaven. <laughs> this is, um, you went to the wrong church. That's what I'm thinking. So this is pretty strange. This is a weird, weird thing that's just outright lies about Christianity. And then the response, by the way, you'll be doing tons of things in heaven, right? Tons of things, lots of activity. It's a whole, the, the, again, the picture of heaven is a city where heaven and earth meet together and you have the manifest presence of God and the, the full activity of a city 
where there's a bunch of holy and wonderful, joyful people. I mean, this is like the ideal society. That's what it is. Um, but then the solution is even weirder than the lies about Christianity. The solution is, I'm going to go to hell then. Does this person, does Deconstruction Girl believe that hell is a place where you will not have to praise a deity? There may be some truth there. You will not, you will, you will get to have sex all the time. You'll eat a bunch and you'll do everything else you've ever enjoyed. And that's their picture of hell. They literally are picturing hell like heaven, but without God. Um, the delusions people have about the topic of hell are probably worse than the ones they have about heaven because the, the perception of hell as like this place where you party, you live up, you live up the life and you're with all your friends who are in hell. None of that is probably true at all on a Christian worldview. If you're going to say this is what Christians believe, then none of that's true. Like why think that if so-and-so is in hell and I'm in hell, why think we're hanging out? or having fellowship, or having any connection of any kind. There's no joy in that place. So, weird, weird meme. This this meme ultimately is just, and it, it's a lie about Christianity, and a full, full-fisted attack on Christian faith, celebrating rejection of Christianity. It's, it's as though it's fulfilling what scripture says about many people whose hearts have been darkened. Very sad. Let's go to number four. Number four, which says, uh, there we go. That was right. And then number, four. okay. It says, uh, faith is the belief in things, is the belief in things without evidence. If you had evidence, you wouldn't need faith. I don't know what this this meme pictures from some some cartoon, but the picture of, of it is a guy who rips off the wallpaper and and reveals reveals this amazing truth. Right? Hey guys, faith is and notice this. A, a lot of people define faith in these weird ways, um, but they should. <laughs> and so, faith is the belief in things without evidence. Is that what faith is? There we go. Number four. Thanks for the reminder. Um, from my assistant, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, mods. Thanks, thanks, guys, for all your help. Couldn't do it without you. The chat is already crazy, and it would be a dumpster fire without the mods in there helping to calm things down when possible. Um, so is faith belief without evidence? Is that actually a biblical view? It's very popular. It's a popular belief that if... And I even heard a thing where... Um, some clip, like a short clip of Ben Shapiro um, talking about faith and every every religious thing, it requires just a blind leap of faith. They All religions require a blind leap of faith. And I think that he's operating from that same perspective of, oh, faith is kind of without evidence. That's just the nature of faith. And I think this is a, a, a very unbiblical thing. Many Christians will say it. I've heard it said many times. Well, I, you know, how do I know the Bible is really true? Man, that's what makes it faith. You know, you just, you don't know. You just got to trust. I think this is dangerous and actually reckless kind of way of doing things, but not just because of me personally. I had a conviction in my heart for a long time that I didn't like this attitude, but as I studied the Bible with this question in mind, I found many places where the Bible totally refutes this weird definition of faith. I'll give you first the Greek reason why, and then I will give you specifically from Jesus evidence that this is not the case. First, the Greek thing. Faith, the word pistis, 
that's the word faith in Greek or belief. Um, that word does not mean without evidence. Like it, no ancient Greek is thinking that when someone says you have to have faith, it means there is no evidence. And that if you added evidence, it's no longer faith. Some skeptics and atheists have gone so far as to say, I don't believe anything. I have no faith in anything because all I believe in is evidence. And it's it's a very confused perspective on things, on what belief means, because they start to think that faith and belief literally means I have zero evidence for what I believe. Therefore, I believe nothing. I have no beliefs. I only have, you know, my, I'm convinced by evidence. They have to find new ways of using English because it's because it's getting really weird. But here's some some specific scriptures in that we can look at. We'll look first at Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. And I encourage you, Christian, if you're listening, you may have said this with all the most wonderful intentions. But please don't. Faith doesn't mean lack of evidence. And I'll explain why I think you might be confused on this in a moment after I go through a few verses on this. Please just consider these thoughts. Here's Jesus himself. And... Um, Ooh, I think it was Mark 5. I think I wrote down Mark 9, but I think it was. Oh, Matthew 9. Matthew 9. I wrote Mark and it was Matthew. All right, Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 1 here. And it says, um, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some of the people brought to him a paralytic. So the paralyzed person comes up, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, and what is, by the way, just context, right? What is the paralytic one? He wants to be healed. He wants healing. Jesus says to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is Jesus derailing the moment because he's going to utilize this moment for something that he has an agenda for. Um, he doesn't offer the guy healing. He offers him forgiveness. Now that may be disappointing to some, but I'll tell you what, he offered him something better than healing, but let's read on because this is about faith in the end. And behold, some of the scribes said to, the, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming because they didn't think that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Only God could do that. So they thought it was blasphemy that he claimed the authority to forgive sins like that. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now you might, we could debate which one's actually easier. With, with just your words, it's easier in my mind, it's easier to just tell someone, oh, your sins are forgiven. But it's not easy to say it and make it actually happen, right? like make that forgiveness be real. But to say to somebody, rise and walk, if they don't physically get up and walk, everybody knows you're a fraud. But if you say your sins are forgiven, nobody immediately knows you're a fraud. So the one that has evidence, that's evidence-based for, ev for proof, is the rise and walk one. So Jesus uses it. Check this out. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus himself, he doesn't say, well, guys, faith is blind. You must believe without evidence. No, no. What does he say? I will prove to you that I can authoritatively forgive sins by healing this man right now. And when he rose, or and he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus himself uses a miracle as evidence to demonstrate and stir up faith in others. And this is not the only time. Remember the story of, of Lazarus? Well, in John, you know, Lazarus who dies and four days later, Jesus raises him from the dead. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 15, Jesus talks about why he delays going to see Lazarus. Lazarus is sick 
and Jesus delays. And during that time, he dies. And he says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there to heal him when he was sick so that you may believe, but let us go to him. What does this mean? Jesus is saying, you guys would have believed seeing me heal him from being sick to some degree. But when you see me raise him from the dead, you're going to have a new evidence to demonstrate and give reason for your faith in me. Jesus is not opposed to evidence for faith. Another one is John 14. 1429 says, now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Telling people things before they take place is called prophecy. So that when it takes place, you may believe. Jesus is saying, I've prophesied to you about what's going to happen so that after it happens, you'll believe. Jesus was slowly working the disciples towards faith through many demonstrations of evidence. When the disciples went out and preached, they did so with evidence. They brought the evidence of the resurrection, the accounts, the witnesses. There were many witnesses. They brought the evidence from prophecy, from the fulfilled prophecy, just like what's written here. I mean, Jesus, he's talking about what he just told them at the moment about his ascension to the Father and stuff. But this could be taken to be a statement about the entire Old Testament, is that God told us, you know, before it takes place, so that when Jesus shows up and it takes place, we might believe. It's very true. So back to the meme What's wrong with the meme? Faith is not belief in things without evidence. That is not a biblical view. That's not a truly Christian view. That's a popular modern view, and it's not Christian. So it says if you have evidence, you wouldn't need faith. That is also not a Christian belief. It's simply not. Now, why do people say this? Why do people get so messed up and confused on the topic of faith is belief without evidence? That's just what faith means, even though that's, that's a very wrong thing to say. I think that faith, where they're getting off base, is faith is often about expectation for future events versus current circumstances. So faith often has to do with what will happen in the future, but hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean there's no evidence for it. So let's say that I'm I'm at school and I'm standing outside and it's like 3.30 p.m. and I'm waiting for my mom to come pick me up at school. And I'm a kid in this, in this, in this analogy here. I'm not a, you know... I'm not a grown man. And I'm waiting for her to pick me up from school. And it's like 3.30, school's out. And I'm waiting. She hasn't come yet. And it's 4 o'clock and she hasn't come yet. And it's 4.30 and she hasn't come yet. And it's 5 o'clock and she hasn't come yet. But every day for the past like number of years, she's always come. And so I still stay there waiting, thinking, I believe I expect her to come. And someone could say, you have no evidence that she'll come. And I could say, well, I have years of her always showing up. Something might have happened. She might have got a flat. She might have had some kind of emergency go on at work. But I'm going to wait. She'll find a way. She'll come. This is a an informed, evidential faith about a future thing that will happen. There's no lack of evidence there. It's the same thing with God. I have faith that I will be raised from the dead and live eternally in heaven. But I don't have that faith for no reason. It is about a future expectation. But future expectations are not the same as no evidence. If you confuse expectation with lack of evidence, you could fall for this sort of meme. This is consistent, the, the, just the continual misrepresentation of Christianity. Christianity is easy to tear down when you are willing to misrepresent it. Let's go to number five. My favorite parts of the Bible are when Jesus is alone, talking to God himself, and someone who wasn't there is writing about it. <laughs> this one's posted by the Thinking Atheist. 
um, 3,000, over 3,000 likes at the time that, and it was less than 24 hours old when I, when I saw it, when I screen grabbed it, put it in my little meme folder to think about maybe doing a response to one day. Um, so let's work through this a little bit. Um, one of the problems with vague statements about parts of the Bible can be that they're vague statements about parts of the Bible. We're not looking at specific examples of scripture. So like you could take one example, like the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when I taught through the Mark series, uh, I addressed this issue in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus went to the cross, he's there praying. He's seeking for um, reprieve from, from this horrible trial that he's going through, but he entrusts himself to the Father and says, not my will be done, but yours done. And he just, he's sweating great, great, great drops of blood, Luke says. There's just intensity going on. But some people bring up the objection, how on earth do we know what Jesus said? Because it's like he... He, uh, he left the disciples, he brought, you know, the three, Peter, James, John, a little further, and then he left them and he went a little further and he prayed. And my answer to this is, well, they were close enough to hear him. That, I mean, th this, seems, this seems easy. Like, he went a little further. It doesn't say he was outside of, you know, um, audio, audio reach. There's no freeways. It's not that hard to hear people in the middle of the night when <laughs> they just walk a little bit further and keep talking and praying. And he encouraged them to pray too, which means that they would maybe be listening to his prayers to be informed on what they would pray. So th this is, in other words, not as frequent of an issue as you might think. Probably the biggest example I could think of if I was the skeptic and I was like, I'm going to pick an, a specific scripture to address and, and bring this accusation on. It would probably be um, the, the wilderness temptation that Jesus went through. So Jesus was very much alone during that time. The disciples, nobody was nearby, right? No one's there to overhear him, it seems. You know, he's very much alone. He goes out alone in the wilderness. He's fasting for a long period of time. Satan comes and tempts him. And we have records in the New Testament of what Jesus said, what Satan said, where, where he was taken, and every not everything that happened at the time, but like these three temptations by Satan that are specific. We have detailed records about those things. And you're like, how could anybody know this stuff? And I want to say, um, you know, obviously a Christian could simply say, well, the Bible is inspired of God. There's, there's no reason why the Holy Spirit couldn't just give the knowledge to the authors about what happened to Jesus during his, his uh, wilderness. But there's, there's another less miraculous explanation of this. Uh, my wife frequently knows what I did when I was alone. Conversations I had with people. I was on the phone the other day with a family member for a while. I walked into the house and I told my wife about the conversation. And now someone could say, how did Allison know about what Mike was talking about when she wasn't on the phone and he was outside pacing around? Because I'm, I'm one of those people who just constantly paces whenever I'm on the phone. Like it's like I just, as soon as I get on the phone, I start walking around. I guess it's a good exercise. Like, this is pretty simple, right? Well, is it possible, thinking atheists, that Jesus told the disciples what happened in the wilderness? Is that possible? He was with them for three years. Hey, Jesus, you were in the wilderness for 40 days. What happened? Oh, well, Satan came and tempted me, and I said this, and he said this. Jesus, you've been gone for a while. What were you doing? I was praying that the Father would da 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 da. Like they're in deep relationship with each other. It just seems weird to assume that like you can't talk about whatever you did when you're alone, and we're going to presume that this is like evidence against the Bible. This just seems like it's the 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 
not thinking very carefully. You, you guys get the point. Let's just go to the next one. Number six. Number six is um, about family relationships in the Bible. And this is, you know, on the top posts under hashtag contradiction in the Bible. And here it says about family relationships. Two quotes. One from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. I know the text is kind of small, but I'll read it to you. From Exodus, it says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, this is also repeated in the New Testament. In Ephesians, you know, it says, honor your honor your father and mother. Is it Ephesians or is it Colossians? Which is the first commandment with promise. That, um, um, where is that? Peter. I think it's Peter now. Ephesians and Colossians also talk about honoring your parents, but I'm trying to remember where that extra phrase is in there. Anyway, then we have this phrase from Jesus from Luke 14, where it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus want you to hate your parents? Because that's the only way this is a contradiction. Yeah, this is considered top posts in hashtag contradiction in the Bible. In fact, this is more of a Muslim meme. It says it's posted by true servants of Allah. So it's, I mean, atheists would probably, some would agree with this. Um, but interestingly, is this a contradiction in the Bible? Like I'm laughing because it, because I've spent a lot of time with the words of Jesus. And so I can understand why some will be confused. I had a family member once who said this, like, um, they, they heard a, a quote from the Bible about hate your father and mother, and they got visibly up, upset and emotional about it. Well, the Bible would never say that. You know, they were very upset. But this is purely a misunderstanding because we're not reading things in context, right? So those who know Jesus, <laughs> like, why is this even a meme? Like, I'm just asking, do I have to explain this? Jesus clearly taught honoring your parents, but there is a dividing line that Jesus wanted to set down in stone. And that dividing line in our lives is this. When anyone, mother, father, husband, wife, children, makes you pick between them and following Jesus, you pick Jesus. Even if they go, you hate me because you, because you keep doing this Christian stuff. You despise me. You know what? I despise even my own life. When it comes to following Jesus, I will follow him no matter the cost. This is losing everything to follow Christ. That is absolutely a big, important Christian principle, but it is certainly not a blanket rule of like Jesus going, here's the list of people to hate. And then he's giving you this like list. I, I'm amazed. Thinking atheists post this, right? This guy's supposedly very familiar with Christianity. He's one of the old school, like, um, you know, one of the, one of the old school atheists, what do they call them? The new atheists, you know, back in the day. And I, he still does a podcast and stuff like that. And, um, here he has 3,000 likes in 24 hours of people who are just soaking this up. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the previous one. Forgive me. I have more than one on my screen at a time. This one is from the True Servants of Allah. That's right. I was just looking at the likes count. 221 likes, though, of people who are like, yes, yes, this represents true contradictions. Now, why is it that, in this case, True Servants of Allah, Muslims in this case, would be so excited about finding contradictions in the Bible? Purely because, even though... Their Quran says that the Bible is the word of God. They have to posit contradictions because the Bible teaches things that are contrary to their beliefs. The reason why an atheist, on the other hand, similar though, wants to posit contradictions to the Bible is because, again, this devalues the authority of the scriptures in their lives. But this is, this is um, an embarrassingly bad one. Let's go to the last one, number seven. 
Last one for today. Bill Burr, the comedian. Um, this he supposedly says this. I don't. I haven't heard him say it. I don't know. I mean, I don't listen to this stuff, so I don't know. But I thought I heard this almost exactly the same from uh, what's his name, George Carlin, years ago. So I don't know where it really came from, but it says here, God's everywhere, but I got to go down to church to see him? Really? And he's mad at me down there? And I owe you money? <laughs> Religion's so stupid. This is, <laughs> this is it, right? Um, let's work through this a little bit, right? This one has, of course, 1,220 likes posted by Bold Atheism. All right, what's going on here? Um, let's just break it down one phrase at a time. He says, God's everywhere, but I have to go to church to see him. Um, no, you don't. Like, who said that? Like, is that what Christians are teaching? Like, you're, you're acknowledging, right? God's everywhere, which is why you do not have to go to church to see him. Or to, I'm assuming by see him, it means, you know, draw close to God, understand God, or have a relationship with God. No, you do not have to go to church to do that. You have to go to church to have a relationship with the church, the body of Christ. If you are a Christian and you don't regularly gather with other believers for the sake of worship and fellowship and prayer and, and edification of uh, learning the word of God, then you're going to be robbing yourself of some very important spiritual benefits as well as others because you're not there to bless them. So there's a, there's a communal aspect that's very important in our lives that church brings in. There's also accountability. So church helps kind of like raise your awareness if maybe your life is getting off track. It's often there as you start to worship that you realize like, man, I, man, I've really been blowing it. I've been blowing it, Lord, I'm sorry. And you just get restored and you know, you, you have these corrections in your life that, that happen sooner instead of after major destruction. You know, and you also get education, you get better theology, better understanding of who Jesus is, and you just get inspired to love God and know his word and refocus upon Jesus. It's a wonderful, good thing, right? But do you have to go there in order to see God or something? No, that's that's weird and silly. This is evidence of, of someone who uh, probably doesn't understand Christianity very well. And maybe because some of the Christians they know don't understand Christianity very well. So I'm not saying it's all the error comes from them. It could come from anywhere. But, it, but I would like to point out where it's where it's off. Um, no, you don't have to go to church to see God. Um, there's lots of good reasons to go. You may encounter God in a special way at church, but you could, hey, those of you watching, you want to encounter God? How about you just get on your knees right now, wherever you're at? Just stop this video. Who cares what else I say? Just get on your knees and pray, Lord, I want to know you. I want to experience the knowledge of God. I want to have my life right with God. I want to put my trust and faith in Christ. Just do this right now. You don't need to go anywhere. That's good news. Um, let's look at the next one. He's mad at me down there. Um, and, and I owe you money is the final one. But like, he's mad at me down there. Uh, well, let me let me try to handle this one with some nuance. The statement of he's mad at me down there is only actually funny if it's ridiculous that God might be mad at you. Right? But if God had perhaps a reason to be mad at you, now I, I know some of you are thinking, Mike, tell them, please tell the world, God's not mad, God's not angry, God's smiling all the time, he's always pleased, he's always happy, he's never mad at anybody for anything. I hope God's mad at some people at least. Like I hope that God's mad at Hitler for what he did. I hope God's mad at ISIS for what they've been doing. I hope he's mad about the, the scammers who target like widows 
who are up in age and don't understand technology and they rob them of the last bit of money they have to live their last years on. Oh, I hope that God's mad at those people. But where do I draw the line of who God's allowed to be mad at? And why do I say it's not me? What if I've done grievous sins against God and against man? God would be right to be mad at me to, in some extent, to some extent. Now it's complicated and it's nuanced because even though God may be mad and angry at a sinner, I think in a genuine sense, he's also loving to them and he wants to see them forgiven and he's holding back wrath because he's hoping for their and desiring for their repentance that they might be saved. So he's rightly mad, but his arms are wide open to bring forgiveness and grace. He's dealt with his own wrath and his own uh, revulsion against sin. Rightly, he's dealt with that on the cross. And if you come through Jesus, there's nothing left that God has against you or, or towards you. So when you, if you come to church in order to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no, you're not entering into the presence of God who's mad at you. You're entering into the presence of God who you've been reconciled to by the love and blood of Jesus Christ. So this is, this is in other words, a, a slightly distorted thing. But I think overall it, it taps into that human pride of thinking like, well, whatever religion I might decide to look at doing, it better be one that generally thinks I'm a good person and approves of me and not one that thinks that God would have any reason to be mad at me. Mad at me? I mean... You know, it's like we've commit sins and we do the Urkel thing to date myself, go back in time and be like, did I do that? Right? And it's like, yeah, no, you did it. <laughs> this is your, this is, it was you. Take responsibility. Stand before God and be like, Lord, that was me. You have right reason. Hey, what's wrong now? Oh, no, I did not end it. Hmm. All right. I'll, I'll just keep plugging away. Thanks. <laughs> that was my assistant calling me. Where'd you go? I don't know what the last thing is that you guys heard. Oh man, I was saying so many wonderful things. I said the most amazing thing I've ever said in my life. And I think it was during that time when the stream was down. I'm going to have to contact my internet service provider and be like, what are you guys doing? Okay, well, since I'm back, let me take the tackle the last one here, which is um, this uh, this statement of I owe you money. Um so, so do you owe us money, Bill Burr? If, if you know you or George Carlin or someone else, if you come to church, do you owe them money? Um, if it's a church that's worth its salt, if it's a church that's decent, no, you absolutely don't. And every church I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of, of, of a number over the years, they're not at all interested in somebody who's a non-believer who's visiting, donating anything. Like, they're not at all. They're just so excited that you're there because they, they care about you and they believe that there's salvation in Jesus and they're excited that you're even showing up and thinking about that. They're not expecting anything from you. Um, I've never seen a church that's expecting that. Now, now, there are some. Okay, there's money-grubbing churches out there and pastors with million-dollar rings and things like this. And, um, and, and that's how you know. Like if the, if, the pa if the pastor's driving a car that costs as much as your house and he comes up, and his wife is wearing a dress that's is, as much as you spent all Christmas on everybody, <laughs> then it's time to go somewhere else. Okay, this is weird. But no, the church doesn't, doesn't want your money. Um, now, on the other hand, to be balanced about these things, if you're attending a church on a regular basis and you're attending there, just imagine if it was just a normal social club. What if you went to a social, now church isn't just a social club, but just to make a point, let's pretend you went to a normal social club. 
you're gathering there and every week you go and there's like fresh donuts and you eat some donuts and you have some coffee and you sit down and you notice that they have, okay, all right. <laughs> Great, now I gotta edit. whoop de doo Yep, stinking internet. All right, um, so imagine you're part of the social club and you go there every week and you absorb the air conditioning and you wear out the seats and you're part of the reason why they have to have a, 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 you know, a custodial service and you know people are laboring throughout the week to prepare for and then put on the events that you attend. Even if it had nothing to do with God, you would be a moocher and a leech not to help support the things that are there that you're partaking of. A lot of people are volunteering for things they should be paid for because there's just no budget for it. That's normal day, normal life in a normal church. So to say that churches are all about money, it, that's a minority of churches. And to say that about all churches is just really insulting. Just so you guys know, there's, there's better churches if you haven't been part of them. I hope you'll find them one day. Sorry about the internet issues, you guys. Here's my takeaways though. Have you noticed some similarities? Very consistently, atheist, and in, in one case, one Muslim meme, um, these memes misrepresent Christianity. So that I've spent the whole video not actually defending Christianity. I've spent this whole video just explaining true Christianity versus the mockery and the memes. What is going on when meme after meme after meme, it's like, dude, we don't even believe that. This was my biggest eye-opener when I started engaging with non-believers online was how often I would just have to say, yeah, that's not Christianity. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say that. And then I mean, I could give verses and explain and stuff, but it's just like, that's just not Christianity. Here's a thought. If your continual um, charges against a, a group are based on misrepresentations, then you might just be lying about them to yourself in order to despise them when maybe you should take a second look. The biggest and most successful weapon that atheists have against Christianity is misrepresentation and mockery. It's done over and over again. It's throughout the memes. And it's the thing I've seen more of than anything else. It's not just occasional, it's pretty regular. For that reason, I love to engage with this stuff because I could say to a skeptic, a non-believer, and say, hey, look, I get why this is offensive to you, but I don't think you understand what the truth of it is. Like when you think even heaven is a lame place to be, you know you've misunderstood Christianity. <laughs> and so I hope it's something people will think about. Anyway, that's all the time I got for today. I will see you guys on Friday for the Q&A where I'll take your questions live from the live chat. 20 questions. That's at 1 p.m. Pacific time as always. Thank you very much. And uh, let me let me just pray us out. Um, Lord, we are grateful for the truth of Christianity. We pray that for all of us who are Christians that are watching, you'd help us to think carefully about our beliefs so that we can represent it well. So that when we see mockery and attacks on Christianity, we wouldn't take it personal but we would take an opportunity to re-explain the truth of Christianity because once they know what it really is, it's harder for them to mock it. Maybe they'll even be open to considering it. We pray that you'd help us to be lights in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. That's it. Oh, and by the way, it's a piece of sushi in case you were wondering how much just sushi love. These two, these two things go together.